Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. You're listening to The Mod Pod, a companion podcast to modern optometry, the go-to publication for full-scope ODs navigating the evolution of our profession. I'm your host, Cecilia Kenning. Join me every month to hear me speak with authors from each issue. We'll talk about their articles, get more in-depth about particular points of interest, discuss how to apply tips and suggestions in real-life practice, and more. I am Cecilia Ketting. I am the new host of Mod Pod, a companion podcast to modern optometry. Now, some of you might be a little confused, right? Because in the past, Mod Pod has actually been a podcast of the authors reading the papers verbatim. Well, guess up, we're changing it up. We are actually going to have myself along with the authors to have a conversation about their paper, about their article and get a little bit more in depth, get a little different understanding about the author and who they are, ask them maybe a couple fun questions. And I think it will be quite a bit of fun. I'm excited and I hope you come to join and listen and you enjoy it as well. Welcome to Mod Pod. I am Cecilia Ketting, and I am coming to you from Denver, Colorado, and I'm joined with Chris Cook this evening, um, coming to us from Pennsylvania, who is currently with the group Medical Optometry America. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, Cecilia. Wonderful to be here. Super excited. I'm so excited to have you. (laughs) So fun enough. Um, Chris and I actually previously worked very closely together at Virginia Eye Consultants. We were CK1 and CK2, um, (laughs) and we've both moved on to our next adventure. So what I want to hear is tell me about your new clinic and what you're currently doing. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great practice, uh, that right outside of Philadelphia area in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania. Uh, again, I work with a group called Medical Optometry America, And we have uh, this concept of bringing the medical-based model of optometry uh, for right now to the Philadelphia market. So um, we've got three offices currently, one in Newtown Square is mine, uh, one in Plymouth Meeting, and then one in Horsham, for those of you who know the Philadelphia area. But, you know, we have, it's wonderful, you know, we're given all the gadgets. We've got the latest technology, imaging, testing, in-office treatments, everything that, you know, we had at our fingertips at the large surgical center we worked at in Virginia uh, in an optometry setting uh, for diagnostics and uh, patient care, which has been super exciting. We have done a really hard work networking and sort of integrating with the health system there, which has been uh, probably the most important step because uh, if you wanna build the medical model, you have to gain the trust of your referring doctors and uh, physicians in the area that care for the patients that need their uh, eyes help. So that's been uh, objective number one, which has really taken off in the past year and a half. So I started in April of 2022 and things are just going really well right now. 
Good. That's awesome hearing. Yes, we did uh, a lot of growing of our optometry network um, while in Virginia. So I know that's something you do very well. Right. Yeah, Um, that's great. What else? Anything that's been newer, that's been exciting within, I don't know, even eye care that you have been doing? Well, you know, all the all the gold standards, obviously, at our clinic there. But, you know, for the past year, I did kind of a deep dive. Uh, one of our focuses is prevention and early detection. And with the imaging and the, you know, the diagnostics, that's very at your fingertips. So I did a deep dive in the neurodegenerative disease. And I, I did a little bit of talking on that first to my patients, but, um, you know, more now at the local and national level at a couple meetings. And we're really, really close to having uh, a merger of imaging and caring for these patients at the eye care level um, very, very soon, I think. And that's exciting. You know, there's, I didn't realize what a burden the, the neurodegenerative diseases are on the health system. It's massive. You know, when you look at the cost of macular degeneration on an annual basis and think about all the injections patients get, it's, it's almost like triple that or at least double that. And, um, you know, the eye could very well be sort of a window and a key to detecting these patients earlier, uh, getting them identified and helping them sort of turn things around before they decline and have real problems, you know, specifically with Alzheimer's. That's the big one. You know, you're speaking to my heart, right? Neuro. uh, Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've always been a closet neuro guy. So, you know, I know we've talked about that in the past, but, um, you know, I always make a list. I've got a list of things I need to work on. And neurodegenerative disease was always at the top of that list. I'm like, you know what? This is the year. So I, I really set out to, um, you know, learn a little bit more about that. So that's been very interesting to me over the past year, just uncovering patients that come into my clinic. There's been a number of people who are involved in trials now, and they have this APOE4 uh, gene, and, you know, they know about it. So patients come to us and they ask about, well, how how do the eyes connect to this and uh, really, I think in the future, it's going to be OCT technology, um, ERG, um, maybe even pupillometry. Some of these different diagnostic tests and the combination of those tests are really going to help us identify these patients, which I think is super exciting because that's never really crossed over with eye care. Uh, but we're very, very close to that, I think. You know, apart from that, it's just, you know, the toys I have in my office is great for care. And I, I never had at my fingertips an anterior segment camera. Uh, or just a slit lamp camera. And that has made the hugest impact for just education and dry eye. Really, it's a big dry eye clinic. So that has been a game changer. I mean, we used to have send patients down the hall or order the images. And I never yeah, want to do the that. the room that so. I was in and then I got kicked out and everybody took pictures. Yeah. Nobody wanted to do it because, you know, no one wanted to bring an anterior segment camera in because we all knew we'd clog up the camera and it would be a pain in the neck. But now I have one in my my room and it's been a wonderful tool. And I'm sure a lot of eye doctors out there feel the same way. And that's, that's been a big thing for me over the past year, really just great for dry eye and great for some of the treatments we offer. Yeah, that's awesome. And so going off of your talking about the future with, especially with the neuro, and I completely agree. And that's everything I've been getting as well. Um, we are here because we're talking with you because you wrote an article for Modern Optometry and it is talking about the future and the future is early intervention. And in your article, you actually mention, and I loved this, this is why I pulled this quote, perpetual refining of our understanding regarding the interface between earlier treatment and our most common eye foes is essential for delivering cutting edge eye care. And that is so true. 
So my question to you, and you talked a little bit about this, right? Your list of, of what you wanted to, to delve into and learn more about, but how do you ensure that you're at the top of your game and aware of the constant changes within our industry and within eye care? That's a, that's a great question. I hearken back to my early days in practice where, um, you know, maybe I didn't have the fire that I do now. And uh, a lot of times when, you know, we're just starting out, we've got obligations and different things we're responsible for. But at this stage of my career, um, I think a couple things are important. I think it's very important to go to live meetings. That's one thing that I, I really think, um, you know, seeing your colleagues and talking to them in person and seeing what the new technology is, you got to do that. You got to do at least one a year, get out there, see what's face-to-face, see what's new. As far as um, what I do on a day in day out basis in my own office, uh, social media is big. You look at social media, look at what people are posting about. You think, oh, that's interesting. Um, that could be a starting point. I get email lists like one in particular that I think I look at. I'm not even sure. I think it's called Practice Update, but it comes in my email bin and it's got maybe four or five articles that are relevant to studies that just came out. And, you know, I click on those and see what's new. And then really it's just finding something that um, I'm interested in or something I read about that I don't know about. And then just doing a deep dive, you know, go to PubMed and see what research is out there. Uh, Maybe ask, call up a few friends or text a few friends. Hey, have you heard about this and see what people think? I'm on a couple text threads with buddies from optometry school and I really think it's about networking and I didn't do that when I was younger. So there's the differentiator. I was locked in and in my clinic and just doing my thing and going home at the end of the day. But I think it's crucial to get out, be social, go to the local meetings at night. You know, if you got a rep dinner that's going to learn about a new drug or something like that, go out and meet people and uh, hear about what's new. I think that's optometry, being an advocate for optometry, really. Yeah, that's awesome. And that I mean, it's it is hard, too, because we get so many emails um, and so many different blasts and things to just be like, delete, delete, delete. And I've really had to, to one, refine it and tell them to step back and give it to me once a week. <laughs> I don't have the time and I don't yes. want to delete it because look, even though I'm out there speaking and writing just like you are, it doesn't mean I'm an expert all the time at everything. And there's always stuff to learn because it's always changing. And that's why I think all of us got into medicine was it's not a stagnant pool of information. It's, it's always changing. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yep. So going into what you were talking about, as far as what is the future, right? As far as early intervention, we were talking about this the other day, you are the father of three young ones. Um, apparently in my mind, they're still much younger than they actually are. Um, but, uh, Thinking about this as far as being a parent, um, the implications of myopia control is, is is huge, right? This is not something I do. I led a panel on it last year, but it just kind of opened my eyes to how impactful it really is. Um, and I know, I think you're probably in the same boat as me, not really seeing a lot of kids, but we can appreciate the importance to this. I want to hear what are your thoughts on the research um, as you kind of delved into this, that uh, with the thoughts of that repeated low level red light therapy that you were discussing. A couple of things. My kids, for some reason, they're blessed with their mom's eyes. Like they got perfect vision. So they lucked out. I'm a little nearsighted. I have a lot of sill. But um, yes, we're all concerned with our children. And this, the ball is an optometry court for myopia control. And it's going to be a huge, huge deal. Um, I, like you, do not see. Um, you know, I'll identify a kid that's seven or eight and say, hey, you, you're a minus 50. You need to 
keep tabs on this. We're going to set you up with a doc that does it. And for a long time, I was sending my patients out, but I just recently brought in, her name is Dr. Marie Homa Palladino. So she, in my area, uh, for the past 10 years, had kind of dedicated her practice to myopia control. So she comes into our practice now three days a week, and um, she's part of uh, Medical Optometry America. So she's in our Newtown Square office, I should say, three days a week and sees these children. So I've learned a ton about it just through her. Um, you know, the obviously the, the gold standards have been atropine and um, the contact lens, the soft contact lens, like my site, which, um, you know, at dinner center distance multifocals and then ortho K. So they, you know, the lenses you sleep in to reshape the cornea, all those have been um, clinically proven methods, but one um, intervention that looks promising is that uh, repeated low level red light. And that basically uses a wavelength that uh, a child would um, be exposed to for, I think it's a couple minutes a day, three minutes a day, twice a day or something like that. So um, morning session, evening session. And they've shown that um, there is a 50%, 54% reduction in myopia at 12 months. So that's exciting. And that study came out of Shanghai, I think, and, and it looked at kids grades uh, one through four were at least a minus 50 and they had a parent that was like a minus three or something like that, or some, those were the sort of the qualifying factors. Um, and, you know, there, I think there had been some, there's still some question marks, obviously, well, how does this work and what's it doing? And um, there's looking at the choroidal thickness, I guess it causes choroidal thickness to increase. And with this particular therapy, maybe there's more of a rebound effect or something like that. So they're looking at that. But, you know, you look at any therapy and say, well, how does it work? Well, I think atropine is the anticholinergic basis because we think that uh, the acetylcholine receptors are involved in stimulation and retinal growth. And they, we think that's how atropine works. Well, how does uh, this this uh, red light work? Well, it may um, change the choroid in some way that slows down the progression or the elongation of the eye. Is it a bad thing? Probably not. It doesn't look like there's been any negative um, outcomes with the study so far. So it looks promising. And again, it's another way uh, we can intervene and slow down this whole problem of myopia, which can lead to obviously huge implications down the road uh, later in life. No, I mean, make a difference early to make a difference later. Same Absolutely. thing with, with many things that we do in our it's clinic. It's the prime example of intervention for at an early point for our career or, you know, our profession, it's just such a home run for optometry. And it's something that everybody needs to get on board with because it's the real deal and it's going to make a big impact, I think. No, I completely agree. So in your article, um, you're discussing new treatments and research in Demodex, which of course I can't not uh, bring up and it's <laughs> being one of my favorite disgusting topics ever. Um, what pearls, because I know you treat a lot of ocular surface disease, but what pearls do you have with treatments, diagnosis, um, and what are your thoughts on patients who present without cholerets, but other signs of Demodex? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, like you, I've been amazed so far and it's, you know, maybe two months or so that I've had it out there and, and using it. And it's really people that didn't have much of a problem. They were like, not my problem patients. I've, I've used it and they're like, wow. I feel better and they don't, they're not exactly sure how to put a finger on it. So, you know, I see that type of result and I say, I start putting it in the mix for all my ocular surface disease patients. Like, you know, this has to be in my checklist of things that I'm considering and whether they have cholerets or not, we know that uh, Demodex have two different varieties. Some live in the lashes and some live 
the meibomian glands are, are active in the meibomian glands. So you see vascularization, you see chronic styes, or maybe they've only had one or two styes in their life, but a light bulb should go off if there's any um, inflammation and erythema uh, of the lid margin. So I, I'm, uh, you know, a changed person when it comes to dry. I think eyelids always. And, you know, I look at the structure. So I look at the meibomian gland structure. I, I have my biography, but you can do it without my biography. You got to, you know, evert the lid, put some light there and just see how the structure looks. Are they short? Are they there? Is there any meibomian glands there? Um, and then I look at the function. So I push on the lid, make sure you're getting some kind of expression. Is the expression cloudy? Is it, is it waxy? What does it look like? If they have collarettes, you know, like, hey, we should probably try this because it's going to make a difference for how your eyes feel. But like you said, it doesn't have to be. It could just be MGD. You know, it could be um, you think, oh, maybe this person just has, you know, ocular rosacea. Well, why do they have ocular rosacea? Maybe this is part of the answer. And uh, I've been seeing that already in patients that I've tried it in. So I, I'm really excited about that. And again, the earlier, the better. You're talking about XDEMV. That as far as treatment, what do you think? Sorry, yeah. yes. No, that's perfect. That, just yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and and we know it's new, and and I would agree a hundred percent that I'm seeing great results. I'm trying it in a subset of patients where I'm seeing a lot of like they have ocular rosacea, they have redness, erythema, broken lashes, like they're brittle and short, but I'm not necessarily seeing color arts. And I want to see what happens because we know Demodex is there, but is there a subset or a situation where maybe we don't have those color arts? Yes. But it still is Demodex is the problem. So yes, yeah. yeah. Along those lines, I think I just read something where there's this new um, phase two A data that came out, the top line data that looks good for structure and function of meibomian gland. I think I just saw that the other day. So I think it's the real deal. It's a it's another good one. And you are you you keep using those two beautiful words that I love when we talk about meibomian glands, structure and function. Both are so important. You have to look at both. Got to do both. Got to do it. Yeah. So last question I have about the about your article. Um, you talk about genetic testing, both in relation to glaucoma and keratoconus. And, you know, we were talking about this the other day that, you know, hey, a lot of people don't know that this happened, but actually Av Avagen is no longer available to test for keratoconus. And we're not quite sure what the pro like le the likelihood is that it's going to return. Um, what are your thoughts on genetic testing overall for glaucoma? Do we think it's going to be better received and maybe implemented? Let me know. Let me hear what you have to say. Yeah, I mean that's another one of these things. It's for for me, genetic testing was always this like idea that was out there. You know, like I know it's a thing. I know it applies to certain diseases in the eye, but I think. As a profession, we've really got to start digging in on genetic testing because it is going to bring a lot of the chronic diseases that we've cared for and didn't have um, much insight on to a much closer um, view for us, basically. So, you know, as you mentioned, the Avagen, um, when we chatted over the weekend, I I think when I uh, was initially talking with you, it had, it had been something where they said, well, maybe we're going to start uh, delving this out to another company. So I did. I checked with them again and they said... Um, right now, there's no no one that's taken us up on it. But so what happens is, uh, you know, a new test comes out. That was an awesome test. It could tell you about corneal dystrophies. It could tell you about your risk level for keratoconus, and it could be used surgically or uh, in a family, you know, situation to find out who's at risk in the family. Um, and, and as we, if we don't incorporate these tests, I mean, market forces are what they are in America. If if it's not taken up and people don't use it, it might not make it. Um, but again, I think for glaucoma. 
you know, there's definite specific locus in um, glaucoma testing that can tell you about the congenital types of glaucoma or very specific types of glaucoma, but nothing for primary open eye glaucoma that has multiple uh, loci and they're um, sort of broad. And, and recently there's been a study that tripled the known uh, genetic locations um, that that are uh, tied to glaucoma. So we're seeing this explosion of information. A lot of it comes from the 23andMe uh, and those tests that we, you know, hear our friends and family doing. I had a patient come in and say, this, you know, told me that I have a greater risk for glaucoma. What does that mean? Well, we're still screening. We're still doing, um, you know, our exam. We check pressure. We do the fields. We do the OCT. But when does that genetic testing come into the clinic and and we start to be able to say, we don't have to screen 25% of patients anymore because we know this person has the greatest risk because of their genetic makeup. We can put them to the head of the class instead of wasting time on everybody else who just has big optic nerves. So I do think that's coming for glaucoma. It's not here now, but um, certainly it's worth starting to learn more about uh, and all the diseases we care for. But glaucoma is an exciting one just because of all the people we screen. It's half our day in clinic is, is uh, screening people who probably don't have glaucoma. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so that was, that was really helpful. Um, I have a last fun question for you in the last minute that we have, uh, as we're, we're kind of wrapping up here. If you could send a message back to yourself, what would you tell first year optometry student you? Great question. Um, it, it harps back to one of the things we talked about earlier tonight, but I was a, um, I was not an active optometrist in my first five years out of school. And, uh, if I could tell anything to a new grad, it would be to be an advocate for the optometric profession because it is an awesome one. I don't know why, but I just never had that. I love being an optometrist and I love my career that I picked, but to know that this profession only goes as far as each individual OD takes it is something that a light bulb did not turn on for me until really until I got to Virginia. And I credit a lot of that to Walt Whitley. He opened my eyes to a lot of things. But um, if I could tell a new grad, it would be stay close to your friends, you know, be passionate about science and the eyes. And uh, your future is only as bright as how much you push for optometry at the state level. So get involved in your local societies and at the national level, at the AOA level. So get involved, be an advocate for your profession and, and dig into the science and always be passionate about what you're learning. So important. We are a legislative based profession and without the continued pushing and or maintenance, we can lose things. So Chris, that was, that was wonderful. And I think first year me probably could have used that as well. <laughs> So I want to say a big thank you to Chris Cook from Medical Optometry America, who wrote an article in the January Modern Optometry um, issue on the future is early intervention for being here. This was wonderful. It was such a great talk. And we appreciate Thanks, Cecilia. you. So good to see you. Good hanging out. Good talking. Appreciate it. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. I am joined today by Jessica Schiffbauer. 
Um, she practices at the eye centers of Racine and Kenosha, and we're here just kind of chatting it up. How are you, Jess? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. Um, so I have a question. We were lucky enough to previously have worked together very closely at Virginia Eye Consultants for a fair amount of years, um, and have both moved on to our next adventure. So I want to hear about it. Tell me about your new clinic and what you're currently doing. So Monday through Friday, just like most of us, um, I'm seeing patients. Um, so I'm seeing a good mix of medical and then a few vision patients as well. Um, pretty much ranges from ocular surface, glaucoma, retina, um, do have a little bit of oculoplastics, and then a lot of post-operative care too as well. Um, typically, I'm seeing about 35 to 45 patients a day, um, and then I do work alongside um, two other ODs, and then we do have two MDs in our practice. Um, both of them are well-versed in multiple different types of surgery, so seeing a lot of those post-op patients too as well. Very cool. What recently have you guys added to the clinic or within clinic that you've kind of gotten into that's making you excited? So fortunately at our clinic, we have a lot of research studies going on. Um, so it's always interesting to see different devices, specifically MIGs and seeing where that they're coming um, from. So there's a couple of different studies that are going on right now um, that I'm involved in. So it's awesome to see, I know we're going to kind of touch upon this later on, but just in terms of the evolution of glaucoma in itself, I can't go, of course, too far into detail with some of these studies, but it'll be interesting to see what's on the horizon and then just seeing these patients um, follow through with this study. Yeah, I would say that's always one of the things that I found really cool about being at Virginia Eye Consultants and then now being at the university is being part of the studies, which is essentially the next generation of what's to come and, and getting to see it. Even if you can't talk about specifics, it's just, it is really interesting. It's fun. Yeah, um, it definitely is. Yeah. So your article, which is Managing Postoperative Glaucoma Complications, um, it, very apropos for you. And I mean, essentially your entire career, mine as well, uh, has pretty much been alongside ophthalmology. And I know that you and I definitely spent a lot of time, I think you more so than I, uh, being a, an extender for glaucoma and glaucoma surgeries. And as your article discusses, glaucoma co-management between eye care physicians is so important, both in monitoring as well as talking about post-surgical care. And I thought, who better to ask than you for what pearls do you maybe have as far as for other doctors who are looking to become more involved in co-management? So first of all, I highly recommend no matter what kind of practice setting you are, just getting to know the surgeon and they may not be specifically fellowship trained in glaucoma, but they still do some of the mixed procedures and other procedures too as well. So I think it's really developing a relationship with them and getting to know them. Um, I would also say taking the opportunity to shadow in the operating room. I think that was like a huge learning curve for me because you can really, really understand what you should be seeing and expecting during the post-operative period as well. And then just keeping an open line of communication with the surgeons um, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think you and I, you know, had to do that in moving to new places. I had to find my whole new, like, who's my phone buddy? Who's my specialist for this surgery? Um, and they were honestly great enough when I came into Denver that many of them invited me to come into the surgical. And I, to be frank, I asked, I said, I'd love to come watch you in surgery. And it, you do, you just learn so much, um, going into surgery. 
So one thing, sorry to add on to that. Um, I mean, I think definitely make sure that you get their phone number. Um, And I always, one of the first questions I like to ask them is like, what's your mode of like communication? I mean, obviously if it's an emergency, you just need to call them as soon as possible. But, um, you know, do you prefer a call? Do you prefer text? Is it better email? I mean, obviously something that needs to be addressed immediately, then that's a whole different story. But if you want to like, you know, ask them a question, I think it's always good to have that information. Um, And that's still, once again, going back to keeping that open line of communication. Yeah, no, and that's that's actually perfect because you should. You should find out what's the easiest way. What do they prefer? Many of them are like, here's my cell phone number. Um, and you just text them. You send a picture, say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And it, you know, they're, they're open to it. So that's a great point. So just a random, do you have a most memorable co-management? I know mine. Do you have a most memorable co-managed moment or patient case that you remember sharing with, um, with a doctor that you, you want to share with us? You know, that's a tricky one. Cause I feel like in glaucoma, I think they're all pretty memorable. Um, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of you see these patients that may have difficulty with compliance. Um, I had a patient, unfortunately that had dementia, um, and she had a caregiver giving her multiple drops a day, which I'm sure we all have those patients. Um, of course, you know, is, the patient getting the drops in, or are they squeezing their eye to get the drops in? But just seeing her eyes light up, no pun intended, after cataract surgery. And then also she had a Zen done at that time too, as well. So it alleviated a lot of just stress and additional time um, putting the drops in with the caregiver. So I think overall that whole interaction in the exam room was amazing because I think, you know, it's not only the patient, but it's also their family members too, as well. So in your article, you mention that it's very important to perform gunioscopy on postoperative patients when looking for complications, which completely agree. Um, it is very important. Um, were you always as comfortable? I know I was not. I got very comfortable. <laughs> um, but were you always as comfortable using a gunio lens? And do you have any suggestion for those of us who may be a little bit rusty? Well, of course, we're all comfortable using a gonio lens. No, I'm just kidding. I, I remember in school, we got like the three mirror gonio lens. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this thing is huge. It's never going to fit on a patient's eye. Um, but going back to that, I mean, no, I was not comfortable using the gonio lens. Um, I think that's one thing, especially in Virginia and then um, working at different places, you know, challenging the externs and the residents to just put a gonio lens just on the straightforward patient. I mean, especially the ones that have the lighter colored eyes. I mean, that's an obvious like gonio view that you're able to see. I mean, don't be afraid to grab it. Um, that would be like one of my biggest challenges is grab a gonio lens and then just start doing like undilated 90 exams just to get more comfortable doing it. Um, so definitely, I mean, and feel free to use different lenses too. I think we all kind of have like a niche for a certain gonio lens. You know, you might prefer a handle, you might not want a handle. Sometimes I go back and forth. Um, but I think, you know, the more times you do it, the more comfortable you'll be doing it. Yeah. And, and to be honest, that's the, the only way that I got good at it, as well as identifying the structures, um, is just keep going. You just got to keep doing it. Uh, and yes, try the different gonio lenses. I've tried many times in, in, in clinic, you're just like, well, I don't have one on me. So you find whatever one you can. And then you go, Oh, I don't like that one. <laughs> yep, exactly. Or, I remember that one, um, that came in that wooden box set. Oh, I else. did not. That was not my favorite. <laughs> I would unscrew the little yeah. handle and yeah, I'm sure nobody loved that, but yeah. And I think for one thing, you know, if there's students and residents that are listening, like 
you know, take advantage of like your mentors be like, Hey, you know, I just did Goni on this patient. Do you mind like just double checking it? Even if they don't have glaucoma, um, you know, and like I said, that's one challenge that I always have to students and residents put the gonial lens on do undilated 90. I mean, of course, some of these patients are just coming in for an, an IOP check, but hey, you pull out your 90 and say, oh, they have a disc hemorrhage. So what does that mean? You know, I mean, obviously it's a little bit different than gonio, but um, that too. And, you know, if their pressure, like let's say they had a stent put in a couple months ago and then all of a sudden like, hmm, the pressure is going up. I mean, that's another obvious slam dunk to put your gonio lens on. And that's actually a really good question is, so where might we want to look for common complications? So say a patient has an eye stent, um, even if it's not new, right? We see the pressure goes up like in that patient. Um, where are those stents typically, or where might we be looking for some of these issues? Yeah. So most of the stents are nasally, which is a majority of the procedures too, as well. But I mean, sometimes with the Zens, um, a lot of them will be superiorly. So sometimes, you know, just on slit lamp exam, it may be difficult to actually visualize that stent. Um, and you might have to put a gonial lens on just to make sure that there's no like fibrin or iris tissue that's blocking that um, stent. So also, I mean, one thing to keep in mind, just from a billing standpoint, anytime you do gonia, whether it's on a post-operative exam or just a regular exam, make sure you're billing for it because eventually you'll get, still get paid on it. So it's an added bonus um, aside from that. Um, but I would say, you know, looking at the sense, making sure that there's no blockage. I mean, sometimes there might be a little bit of a heme um, just from like the blood reflux that can happen with the insertion of these some of these stents. So just following up on that. I mean, of course, if there's anything concerning if you work alongside the surgeon, grab the surgeon. If you don't, give them a call, send them a text message too as well. Oh, great. So you mentioned the Zen gel stent. And in reading your article, that actually sounds like a very involved follow-up period with a lot of key areas of focus um, and places you have to evaluate. So what are your thoughts overall and how have you seen the device perform in patients? So this is a great device, but it definitely um, is time consuming too, um, in terms of just seeing the patients. Um, there's obviously a little bit higher risk for some complications with the Zen and some of them are potentially a little bit more complicated. Now, that being said, with terms of the complications, usually over time, it's just a normal process of the healing and they do well overall. But I will say in multiple surgeons that I've worked with, a lot of times they will change um, their technique. So you might notice something different um, and say, hmm, this is interesting. So I think it's important to keep that open communication once again with the surgeon to say like, hey, are you doing anything different um, with this procedure? Because I know we remember when it first came out, I mean, we had multiple discussions at Virginia about how we're gonna manage these patients. Um, when should the surgeon see the patient or what kind of drops we're gonna keep them on? So I think, and I've learned through just different jobs and so forth, every surgeon's a little bit different, of course, just like you and I are a little bit different. So it's important to talk to them um, and kind of, you know, even maybe see the patient alongside them. I know even when I started in my new clinic, even though I had managed a bunch of Zen patients before, just kind of getting their taste and what their preferences are and how to manage them. And what they found to work, because just like you said, you and I do things differently when we treat dry eye, right? Your first go-to may not be my first go-to. And that's fine. It doesn't mean something's wrong. It just is surgeon preference. And um, yes, I do remember, in fact, some learning curves with that stent. Absolutely. Yeah. It's still happening too, unfortunately. I mean, I think it's like a work in progress. And, um, you know, I, I think 
just reassuring the patient that everything is going to be okay. Um, and technically, you know, I mean, six months down the line, that's another thing with why is the pressure going up? I mean, potentially with their blood benefit from a little bit of a revision that would get the pressure back down to the low teens target. Um, I think one thing we have to keep in mind, I mean, the pressure day one after a lot of these mixed procedures, especially the Zen, may be significantly low and it may be significantly high, but just kind of walking through the thought process as to why the pressure is like it is. Um, I think, you know, you think about MIGs and you think, oh my gosh, like the pressure is going to be fantastic. And you see a Zen and the pressure is like four. And, you know, I think we both remember our first patient that had a Zen. We're like, oh my gosh, like this is a hypotenuse eye. Like what's happening? You know, making sure you're looking for a blood leak and so forth and walking through the steps. But it's not uncommon for this to be a pretty low pressure day one even sometimes a couple of days after surgery. Yeah. And it's a really, I remember it being further on where it was like that one week to four weeks when you're concerned about things fibrosing down and the, it not, you know, functioning properly and the pressure is going up. And I think that's really important that you said six months. So even if for our audience, people who aren't necessarily going to co-manage and Zenstent is probably not going to be co-managed most of the time, unless it's in-house, just because it is that nuanced but even if you aren't, when you see these patients who have a stent and their pressure doesn't make sense, make sure you're looking for complications and making sure making sure you're taking the time to put that gonio lens on and looking at where it should be and being familiar with what to expect. I think that's really important. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think that's another thing going back to the, just the communication. You see these patients and they're six months out and their pressure has been controlled at nine, 10, and then all of a sudden it like at 19. Well, you know, that's higher than where you want their target to be. So what's causing potentially the pressure increase. And a lot of times there can be a little bit of a revision done on the blood that can actually get the pressure back down to 10. And then they're still off the drops. Yeah. And knowing their target, that is a big thing. Even if you're not managing, you need to know the target because you're checking the pressure when the patient's in chair. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And I think that's also something to talk to about the surgeons. Every surgeon kind of has their different forte on like where the target wants to be and so forth on some of these patients. I always like to, even when during the post-operative period, just kind of like to put a note in there about where their target pressure is. So when, if I start to taper them off of their glaucoma medications, once they're pretty much healed, then I can know that, you know, Hey, if it's their pressures between the 15 and 17 range and they're at like 18 I probably shouldn't pull them off of a glaucoma medication um, at that point. Um, you know, of course, if they're on steroid medication, you have to keep that in mind too as well. But that is also something just to kind of monitor for. I think sometimes you just get like a little overwhelmed with all the information. You're kind of looking over their like post-operative drops. They're wanting to know when they can get glasses, like the first question out of their mouth, um, <laughs> you know, where, where their target pressure is. And then you're like, oh yeah, their pressure is good at 15, but is it good at 15 and a patient that has severe glaucoma? Probably not. Yeah. No, that's, that's absolutely true. So the movement recently, um, I wanted to talk about this. There's been a movement to cut reimbursement as there always is, right? This happens every year. They reevaluate and they decide what is reimbursement going to be. Um, and specifically in spring of 2023, they started looking at coverage for microinvasive glaucoma procedures. Um, and the changes in the fee schedule are now scheduled to be implemented, uh, end of this month, actually December of, uh, 2023, as we record this. And I'm just kind of curious how, if at all, do you anticipate this potential change in reimbursement environment to impact your patients? 
and even, you know, MIGS procedures usage overall. I mean, if you think about it, I was thinking about this earlier, like just in cataract reimbursement, right? Are we going to ever stop doing cataract surgery? No. <laughs> Are we going to ever stop doing glaucoma procedure? And think about, I mean, I wasn't practicing when they were doing a bunch of traps, but um, a previous glaucoma surgeon that I used to work for was doing a bunch of traps still. And just in terms of the post-operative management, how far we've come. But I think letting the patient know the options um, as well. I mean, yes, the reimbursement is going to affect some things that in terms of what we do, but there's always something new on the horizon, right? <laughs> um, so there's always a new device. Like we said, we're both been involved in studies that we see where it is potentially happening. So we need to keep above the curve in terms of the reimbursement too, as well. Yeah. It all, it all kind of ends up balancing out in the end. And I think the surgeons realize that, that it's like, Hey, look, this is important for our patients. We know that we will make it up somehow, somewhere as we always do within medicine. I agree. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so with optometry scope, uh, we were, we were lucky enough to be in Virginia, um, for a bit and, it, the scope is continuing to expand in many states. I think it expanded right as we both left Virginia uh, and um, where we both came from, right? And then now our new homes, me in Colorado, you in Wisconsin, the scope is going to continue to change. What are your thoughts and considerations regarding this when it comes to your current practice in performing YAG PIs and SLTs? Is it something that it being potentially on the horizon in the future, who knows, right? Because all the states are different. Is it something you would be excited about? And, you know, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think this is awesome for us as just ODs throughout. I mean, it's great to see our scope continue to develop and more states keep adding on. Um, you know, I think we are all aware that the Belkin laser is coming, which I think is going to be awesome. I think, didn't um, it just get FDA approved? Like, yeah, sure. They get FDA today. approved. Yes. Yep. Yeah, And then also iDose with Glaucose. So, I mean, obviously we can not do iDose, but, you know, I think that's yeah. something just to be super excited about. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think things are going to continue to get less invasive, um, which opens up many doors to ODs too as well. So I think depending on where you're practicing, and of course, I mean, we also have to think about malpractice insurance um, too, but take advantage of what you have um, and you're able to provide to your patients. A lot of us are practicing more in like a rural area um, and patients love the convenience of just going to a one-stop shop to get everything done. Um, so anytime I'm seeing these patients, I mean, I think in my mind, like SLT is like a first line treatment, um, you know, kind of just hopping to that. Um, right now I'm not currently doing the lasers in my practice. So we're still having the surgeons do the, the procedures. Um, but letting the patients know the options, and I'm even actually telling them about MIGS at that like initial visit too as well, because I think, you know, as time goes on, eventually they may not even have to be, you know, that much of a surgical procedure. Um, fortunately, where I practice right now, we actually have a office-based surgical suite. So a lot of these patients are having cataract surgery, MIGS procedures, and even some bluffs are just... Um, getting a pill of Valium and then that's their surgery. They're not even having any anesthesia whatsoever. Um, obviously there's some topical anesthesia, but overall they're able to tolerate the procedures really well. So this is where a majority of the patients that I'm seeing postoperatively are having their procedures done. Um, and you know, it's amazing because it in the office is much, much more comfortable environment. I think a lot of times, unfortunately, patients can be a little bit more hesitant. And I totally understand when you're walking into a huge surgical suite, but they were just seeing 
a week ago, two doors down um, in the exam room. So I think it's awesome as ODs to see where we can take this. I mean, props to all the states that have been working their butts off, I'll use a good term, um, to get these laws passed and so forth. Um, but I think it's awesome. I mean, I think we both know where we came from, even like in school, just in terms of how much um, we were taught about these procedures and now seeing where the students are being able to do these like multiple times a day on patients is awesome. I think it's, it's, it is, it's really exciting. And I think it, um, it speaks volumes about the movement of both optometry and medicine itself. So exactly. as a whole. Yeah. So last fun question here. Mm -hmm. Um, if you could send a message back to yourself, what would you tell first year optometry student you? So I would say, Take advantage of any opportunity that you have. Um, I remember when I started optometry school that I actually wanted to go into peds and no offense, any peds out there. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, getting that just taste of everything, if you have the opportunity to shadow anyone, shadow an OD, shadow an MD to kind of get a feel for anything and you'll kind of find your niche as you go along. I love it. Yeah. Me needed to hear that however many years ago, I won't divulge how long that was. Um, you look great. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you, Jess Schiffbauer for joining us for Mod Pod. If anybody is looking to find you on social media, where is the best place to look? LinkedIn would be the best. Perfect. You heard it from Jess. Find her on LinkedIn and keep looking for her articles in Modern Optometry. Thank you so much. Thank you.